Our next lesson comes from Mark's gospel. It's Mark's account of uh, the Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem. This is on page 44 in your pew Bible, should you wish to follow along, verses 1 through 11. Let us continue to listen for the Word of God. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he, that is Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a coat tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A graduate student at Princeton years ago when the famed Professor Albert Einstein was still teaching there was wondering what to do about his doctoral dissertation. And so he approached Albert Einstein and asked, what is there left in the world uh, for original dissertation research? And Einstein is reported to have told him, find out about prayer. Someone needs to find out about prayer. Well, over the course of Lent 2019, this year, we have been trying to find out more about the subject of Lent. Uh, we've looked at various expressions of prayers. We've looked at what the Bible says about prayer. We have considered what Jesus taught about prayer. We have reflected on what others have said about prayer. Uh, but hopefully, we have also disciplined ourselves to practice prayer throughout this season of Lent. That would be the most wonderful result of this series of prayer. As David H.C. Reed said one time, the best sermon on prayer is not the one who answers all of our questions about it, but the one who, or the sermon that incites us to do it more often. So I hope that has been the case with you as we've been going through this Lenten series together, considering prayer. Now we will never plumb the depths of prayer, nor should we expect to. It's a mystery that will never be wholly unraveled. But people have tried to understand it. And rightly so, it's a worthy project for research by any of us or by all of us together. I've read that over 80,000 books have been published on the subject of prayer. I have a whole shelf in my library back home uh, that has nothing but books about prayer or books of prayer on it. So it's not that we haven't studied it. We have studied it. And yet we continue to struggle with it. I'm told that there are some 650 prayers in the scriptures. I've not counted them. If you want to do that sometime, you can do it and report back to me. But apparently 650 prayers appear in the Bible. And in the epistles of St. Paul, there is at least one prayer in each of his epistles except for the little book of Titus. 
doctoral theses have been devoted to the subject of prayer long before and frequently since the days of Albert Einstein. And yet we do continue to struggle as well we should. And the struggle really is part of the process, I think. The struggle with prayer enhances our relationship with God, I think, and leads to deeper communion and deeper conversation and a deeper relationship with the one who created us and who in Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We began this study back in early March talking about the dis-ease and discomfort most, so many people feel with respect to prayer. They don't know how to pray or feel they don't know how to pray. They think the words are what really matters and they get lost in the, in the words. They are especially uneasy in trying to pray in public. And so they wonder about the value and the validity of prayer. But as I tried to explain, prayer is essential in our life as disciples of Jesus Christ and servants of God because it is prayer that enhances our personal relationship with God. If we want our religion not to be just a ritualistic thing, not just a philosophical or theoretical thing, if we want our religion, our faith to be a personal relationship, which is what the Christian faith is supposed to be, then prayer is a part of it. That's how we commune with our God. We've been commanded to pray, so we take it seriously. Jesus exemplifies prayer in his own life. And I think it is a necessary discipline in the life of any follower of Christ. I tried to make the point early on that the first purpose of prayer is simply to know God more intimately and better. It is not to get things that we want. It's not to change the course of history or uh, receive blessings from God that we deeply desire that's not the primary purpose the primary purpose is simply to know our God better and to spend time in his presence we look next at the, this biblical expression of seeking the face of God and that means simply to consciously place ourselves in God's presence we know that God is present everywhere and at all times but we are not attuned to that so often as we go through our daily routine so a part of prayer is not just the formation of the words you can do that, but prayer also involves silence and reflection and meditation and primarily simply acknowledging the presence of God with us as we go through our lives. And I suggested one way we may do this is simply by asking a couple of questions in the midst of any situation, especially a difficult or trying situation, and that is, what am I learning in this experience? What is God teaching me? And secondly, how might God use this experience in my own life or in my witness if you ask those questions as you go through especially difficult times I think you will be much more attuned to the presence of God and the purposes of God in your own life I read somewhere that prayer is really more about love than it is about language so don't worry so much about the words that you speak God is quite capable of looking into our hearts and reading our minds and knowing what is uppermost in our prayers and in our concerns. We moved on from there to look at some of the principles of prayer that Jesus taught. And the first one was that we pray confidently with expectation, knowing that God can do anything that we ask, but also knowing that not everything is within the purposes of God. And we can't always see those larger and those better.
purpose is because our vision is restricted and narrow. We can only see what we want or what we need or what we feel. And we can't see the larger picture and the better good, but our God can. So you pray knowing that God can do anything, but also trusting that God will use those prayers, your wishes, your hopes, your dreams as a part of his working out his purposes in life. The second principle we looked at was uh, persistence in praying. Our persistence reveals the sincerity of our prayers. It also keeps us in touch with our own dependence upon God, our own human frailty. And it underscores and bonds us to the God who loves us sacrificially and without condition. Also, our persistent praying is a way that we keep up with what God's purposes are for us. Prayer is not simply a substitute for work or labor because we dare not ask God for anything in prayer that we're not willing to work toward in our own lives. And this led into the third principle that I I called praying as a partner. We are co-workers with God, the scriptures say. We're partners with God. God shares his purposes with us and uses our skills, our talents, our abilities, our prayers to accomplish his purpose within the world. And we looked at that passage where Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. And how that has so often been misinterpreted. So many think that that means simply closing your prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. And that automatically means that God is going to do whatever you ask God to to do. That is not the case. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray as Jesus would pray. To pray for what Jesus would pray. To value what Jesus values. To want what Jesus values. To pray in his name is to put yourself in his position. And want more than anything else in your prayer life. What God wants for you, for those you love, and for others. So we pray as as partners with God. And we come this morning to the conclusion of this series, uh, and it gets to the bottom line. Because what so many people want to know in the final analysis is, does prayer really make any difference? Does prayer change anything? And if it does, what does it change? And how does it change it? Now, I realize this is not a text that is from uh, the Palm Sunday story. I typically, throughout my ministry, have devoted Palm Sunday to dealing with some aspect of Jesus' entrance into the city. But I chose not to do that this year so that we could draw this series to a conclusion. And yet, it's not unrelated. As Howell read in one of our lessons this morning, the Scripture tells us, If we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, it will be open to us. And we're reminded that if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does God delight in giving good gifts to his children? God responds to our praying, our asking, and our seeking is what the scriptures tell us. Now, this isn't even an expository sermon. It's more of a topical sermon. I give you that. But uh, maybe we can justify that from time to time. When I was young, uh, my mother struggled with depression and was institutionalized on several occasions for long periods of time. And usually when she would return home, she would have something, some craft, something she had made uh, when she was uh, in the hospital. 
And one of the things she made was a plaque that hung on our wall in our dining room uh, the whole time I was growing up that simply said, prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Do you believe that? What does it change? And how does it change things? Does it change God? Does it change God's nature? Does it change God's character or God's disposition? Does it change the decisions that God makes in governing the universe? It's an interesting theological question that people have struggled with throughout the generations. Theologians speak of the immutable, infinite, and eternal nature of God. In Malachi we read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, if you're one of those people who believes that if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, you have a dilemma on your hands. For a number of dilemmas, really, one dilemma is that if everything is already planned by God and God already has his purposes that God is working out, uh, what is the value of prayer? Are we going to change God's mind about something? A lot of people interpret predestination in, in, incorrectly as a kind of fatalism, a determinism. I don't believe that, and I don't think rightly understood most Presbyterians do either. But we are not the only generation that has struggled with this issue throughout the centuries. Origen, a church father in the third century, uh, put it this way. First, if God foreknows what will come to be and it must happen, then prayer is in vain. Second, if everything happens according to God's will... And if he, what he wills is fixed, and none of these things he wills will be changed, then prayer is in vain. And of course, that was Origen's position. Uh, his conviction doesn't agree with my own. On the other hand, if you believe the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, God never changes, doesn't change his mind, doesn't change his nature, then you have a problem because there are other passages of Scripture that say just the opposite. In Hosea we read, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion has been aroused. In David Lamb's little book, God Behaving Badly, he says there are at least 16 occasions in the Old Testament where God changes his mind. He relents, he repents, he does something other than what he said he was going to do. And he responds to the pleas and the cries and the petitions of his people for help, for healing, for deliverance, for forgiveness. So what are we to make of this? One way to resolve this issue between the changelessness of God, because the Bible says God, among other things, that uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God's response to our prayers and requests is to say that everything, even our prayers, are ordained by God. When I was in junior high school, I remember going to a summer camp sponsored by the Presbytery, and the speaker was Dr. Norman Harper, who would later become a Christian education professor at the little college I attended in Mississippi. And, and one of the students, he was preaching on predestination, believe it or not, with junior highs for a week uh, in the summer. I don't know if we could get by with that today, but anyway... That was the occasion then. And one of the young men asked Dr. Harper during the question and answer time, uh, if everything's already predetermined, which Dr. Harper believed, um, 
why should I pray for my friend who's not a believer? And Dr. Harper said, well, maybe it's because God has foreordained that you offer that prayer as well as the fact that that young man will respond to your prayer. That's a bit too deterministic for me. And it's not the only way to resolve this issue uh, of God's changelessness and God's response to our request and our pleas. Um, I believe God is responsive. I believe that God is like that parent who wants to give good things to his children and wants to hear from his children. He wants us to ask and seek and knock. I believe that God is not some distant, aloof creator who doesn't have anything to do or any desire to be involved in our common lives. That God is like some kind of puppet master that's pulling the strings for us to behave in a certain way. No, God is more like the parent, the loving parent, that is glad to hear all the requests from his children, but must also answer those quests, those petitions and requests in a way that serves their good purposes and the good purposes of others as well. The great truth that too many people simply do not understand is that it is not God who is changed so much by our praying, but rather we ourselves who are changed by our prayers. That is the great emphasis of John Calvin on prayer in his Institutes of Christian Religion. That when we pray, we are changed. Fred Anderson, for many years, was the minister at the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he wrote back in the early 90s, unless you are prepared to change, don't pray. Think about that. Unless you are prepared to change, don't pray. Because you're going to be changed if you're really praying. So often I'm asked, does prayer really work? Does it work? Does prayer work? And my response usually is, it's not so much that prayer works, but rather that God works using our prayers in accomplishing his purposes. Does God answer prayer? Depends on what you mean by answer, I suppose, but I believe that God does answer, not just our petitions, but the person who is praying. Not just the prayer, but the prayer. That is what God is answering and responding to in ways that we cannot see or discern or understand quite often. Sometimes saying yes, sometimes saying no, sometimes saying not yet. God looks into our hearts, listens to our longings and our loves, our pleas. And he knows what we truly need, whether we know it or not. And he answers all of our prayers in accordance with his immutable love and generosity and grace. What then does prayer change? It doesn't change God's nature or God's character, but it does influence how God carries out his purposes in our lives and in the life of the world. I have a friend and she has told me on several occasions that she cannot bring herself to ask God for anything specifically other than to offer God thanks or to offer, ask God for forgiveness. But she says, I don't know what God's will is. I don't even know what my best will is in many circumstances. So I don't ask God for specific things or make specific requests. And that might seem noble at first. And yet God instructs us and invites us to ask specifically and personally for the things we feel that we want and need, even though God knows best 
what, how God should respond to those requests. God commands us to pray, invites us to pray specifically and personally. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not because God doesn't know that we need sustenance. We need to be reminded that we need sustenance and that we depend upon God for the very breath that we breathe and the sustenance that we receive. When we find ourselves praying specifically and personally, we find ourselves being changed, even transformed. And that's what prayer does. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. What will happen if you pray for your enemies? If you pray expectantly? If you pray confidently? If you pray persistently? If you pray knowing that it is God's purpose to bring people together? It's going to change that person from an enemy to a friend. Think of someone you really detest or can't stand. Do you pray for that person? Don't pray for them unless you're prepared to change that person from an enemy to someone else. My wife told me last night she went to see a movie with a, a, a couple who are friends of ours called something the best of enemies or something like that. How a member of the Ku Klux Klan and a, a civil rights worker in Durham, North Carolina formed a relationship. I haven't seen it yet, so I may be commending something that's not worth seeing, but uh, my wife sure liked it. So pray for your enemies if you don't want that person to be an enemy anymore. Do you pray for your church? You can't pray for your church regularly and persistently without taking an interest in the life and work and ministry of that church. Do you pray for victims of injustice? If so, what are you doing about injustice? You can't keep praying for it and not act on it. Do you pray for the weak and the poor and the disadvantaged? Then what are you doing to make a difference in their lives? Because you will be changed if you pray about that fervently enough. Your very lifestyle would change. Consequently, things do change by prayer. We change and through us, inevitably, life itself changes as we are transformed. Can I prove this? No, I can't prove it. It's a statement of faith. And yet the Bible says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things we don't see. So I can't prove it. But do I believe it? Yes, I believe it. It's often attributed to Archbishop William Temple, uh, the statement... When I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. Call them coincidences if you wish. Call them God moments, a popular expression in our time. Call them God putting his signature on the seemingly random events of life. All I know is that the plaque my mother made was accurate. Prayer changes things. I hope you believe that. I hope you're discovering that in your prayer life. The first evidence of prayer changing things will be you yourself changing in your relationship with your Savior. So we are changed, and inevitably, life about us is changed. I hope and pray that has been your experience during this season of Lent. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.